My lord, may it please you to come down. Ah, oh, Ryker, my blistering days of wanting to manage of unruly jades in the base court. Base court where kings grow base that come and traitors call of human grace. In the base court, come down. Down court, down king. Hello folks, and welcome back to Here Read This. My name's Ash, and today my soul mounts and my eyes shine bright as an eagle's to be talking to you about Richard II by William Shakespeare. That's right, Shakespeare's back. After more than a year, can you believe it, we are back on the Bard at last. And this is official Bard as well, for those unconvinced by the rather bashful, toe-poking attempt I made in attributing Edward III to Shakespeare. And on the subject of that episode, just a quick bit of housekeeping before we get into it. One thing I noticed about the episodes on Edward II and Edward III was that they did end up a little bit history-heavy. I got quite carried away with the medieval's backstory and spent, I think, a bit too much of the runtime on it. Um, It's actually one thing that annoys me about criticism about the history plays is that they spend a little bit too much time working out what really happened and comparing it to what Shakespeare wrote. So I I don't want to make that mistake. And since this is a literature podcast, for the remainder of the history plays, I want to put the text centre stage. However, because I find the real Plantagenets fascinating, what I've decided to do as a compromise is to keep the medieval history to a minimum for today and release a separate episode covering the real story of all Shakespeare's kings. So whether you're a history fan or just want to keep track of Shakespeare's source material, keep an eye out for that episode coming soon. It'll be called something like History of the History Plays. As for today, we'll settle for just a very quick catch-up. So, last time on the Plantagenets, we left Edward III at the end of his play, having achieved famous victories in France, helped along the way by his son and heir, the heroic Black Prince. Between now and then, 42 years have passed. The Black Prince passed as well before inheriting the throne, leaving his son Richard to take over from Edward III. Richard was duly crowned at the tender age of 10. But at the beginning of this play, he is now in his early 30s. We first see him attempting to settle a dispute between his cousin Henry Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray, after Bolingbroke accuses Mowbray of treachery and organising the death of Richard's uncle, Thomas of Woodstock. Richard's two surviving uncles, the last surviving sons of Edward III, are also in the play. They are John of Gaunt and Edmund, the Duke of York. Richard is shown to be proud, somewhat callous, and surrounded by flatterers, something that will seem ominously familiar to anyone who has listened to our episode on Edward II. Richard's solution to the dispute between Bolingbroke and Mowbray is to exile them both, setting into motion a chain of events that will resonate throughout Shakespeare's historical saga. The story of the play is one of usurpation. The banished Henry Bolingbroke, son of John of Gaunt, returns from exile to claim the throne. Plot-wise, Richard II is more straightforward than most history plays. W.H. Auden summarised it simply as... Richard goes downhill, Bolingbroke goes uphill. Now, Shakespeare had already written his plays on Henry VI and Richard III, and now, as he came into his own as a playwright, he began a second tetralogy on the kings immediately before them, Richard II, Henry IV, and Henry V. I'm really excited about today's episode, as not only is Richard II a long-time favourite of mine, but to talk about it, I am joined by a very special guest, Gregory Gudgeon. I met Gregory last summer, when I went to see a production of Richard II during the Edinburgh Fringe, That sort of thing was allowed back then, in those sunshine days of 2019. This production was called Puppet King Richard II, and it was performed by Gregory and Lucas Augustine, and directed by Linda Marlowe. Gregory played King Richard, Lucas played 
Bolingbroke, and every other character they shared between them using puppets designed by Yitka Davidova. It was an absolutely brilliant production, and to hear more about it, be sure to check back tomorrow when I'll post an extended interview with Gregory in which we talk about his tour, the development of the show, and his use of puppets in more detail. But for today, like flattened flies, we stick to the text. And I want to begin by making a very straightforward recommendation. If you've never read Shakespeare or just never read the history plays, you could do an awful lot worse than by starting with Richard II. As we'll see when we talk about its critical reception, it has frequently been both championed and denigrated for being something of a reader's play. It is almost entirely in verse, something which, contrary to what you might think, makes it easier to read, not harder. Rhythm is like a handrail that lets you hop over contextual gaps. And it has none of the busy, overstuffed battle scenes that characterise other history plays. It has long speeches, particularly from Richard, that shows his inner life as a novel might, and it remains focused on the doings and wrongdoings of the king and his courtiers and nobles. We only ever glimpse the country's lower orders. In later history plays, the world seeps in with all the messiness of life, history and prose, which makes those plays a lot more theatrical, and in recent years at least, more popular on stage. But Richard II, for all its lyricism, wordiness and lack of action, appears to have been a hit when it first premiered sometime in 1595, under its original title, The Life and Death of Richard II. It was printed in three editions in two years, something no other play achieved. However, early editions lacked the notorious deposition scene, It was a dangerous time to depict a monarch being usurped, and illegal to describe a monarch as a tyrant. I've mentioned before, I think, on the podcast how the Earl of Essex commissioned a performance of the play six years after it was first staged, on the eve of his attempted overthrow of Queen Elizabeth I. The theatre troupe asked to put it on with the Lord Chamberlain's servants, and they were not keen to perform it. Richard II was already an old play by then, and therefore the chances of getting a large audience were slim. It took 40 shillings to change their mind. At the time of its first performance, the theatres had been closed for three years due to plague, and this was one of the first plays Shakespeare returned with. One rumour has it that Shakespeare himself played Richard II, as well as his earlier king, Henry VI. In 1610, John Davies wrote verses addressed to Shakespeare, in which he mentions how the playwright has played some kingly parts in sport. Richard II looks forward not only to the following history plays and the ones Shakespeare wrote before, but to complex, self-reflective characters like Hamlet. Gregory and I began our discussion wondering what it is about Richard that makes him feel so modern. Now, why is that? That's very interesting you pick up on that. I, I, I think so too. I think in some ways that um, uh, the state of mind that Shakespeare might have been in when writing that play, you could say it could be similar to the state of mind he's in when he's writing Hamlet. Mm. There, there, there are maybe Richard you could say is like the king that Hamlet might have been had he ever made it to the yeah. throne. Um, insula, um, very, very heady uh, with, uh, with, a, with a terrific uh, theatricality. A streak, or, of, a, streak uh, of cruelty, perhaps. And cr- cruelty in, indeed, yeah. yes, to, 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 to people close to them. So, I, so it is, it is, he's a modern character in a rather old-fashioned chronicle play, mm. um, speaking in rhyming couplets for a lot of the a lot of the play, much more than I think any other play. The, the the brilliance of the rhyming couplets, the wit the wit of it, is an insight I think to his character and ties in with things we know historically about him that he was very influenced by Italy and Italian fashion and it. You know, he, he, he talks about this terrestrial orb 
and the world as a globe. Mm. And this is hundreds of years before the idea that the world is flat is sort of finally scotched. So his, his thinking and his education and his, uh, his sense of, of, of life in his place at court and so on uh, are all really very far advanced of any of the other characters um, he's sort of head and shoulders, literally head and shoulders, because he was very tall, apparently. He was over six foot and towered over his, over his court. Um, which you did, literally, which was which brilliant. I, which was easy for me to do because they were all so tiny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Richard towers over his subjects in more ways than one. The historic Richard incorporated a sun in splendour as one of his emblems, and the Richard of the play is repeatedly described in association with sun imagery. It had become a commonplace to refer to the king as the sun, and so the downfall of Richard is a true disaster, the word disaster originally meaning to de-star. As king, Richard is seen as the central star in the universe. He is also the last king who can draw an unchallenged line to William the Conqueror. The kings that follow him are all usurpers, or sons of usurpers, and as we shall see, each claimant to the throne will in some way have to position himself in relation to Richard. In attempt to atone for his father's deposition of Richard, Henry V says in his own play that he has had Richard's body interred anew, and on it have bestowed more contrite tears than from it issued forced drops of blood. During the later Wars of the Roses, the Yorkists wore a badge of a son in splendour, making their claim seem the rightful one by proximity to Richard II. Towards the beginning of our play, when Richard exiles his cousin, Bolingbroke consoles himself by saying, This must my comfort be. The sun that warms you here shall shine on me. A sentiment that could be read simply as that of a doting subject, or a sly foreshadowing of his own years in the sun, and therefore of Richard's impending doom. The de-starring of Richard is sacrilege, not only for sun worshippers, but because the king was seen as God's counterpart on earth. He, archetypally, he's the same age as Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, it's it, it's that age that people talk about, you know, 33, mm. that something dramatic can often happen in one's life at that at that time. And uh, it certainly does to him because he's um, he's bumped off. Richard's fall is portrayed quite literally. Cornered by Henry's forces, he appears high up on the battlements of Flint Castle and is described by Bolingbroke. See, see, King Richard doth himself appear, as doth the blushing discontented sun from out the fiery portal of the east, when he perceives the envious clouds are bent to dim his glory and to stain the track of his bright passage to the Occident. In Shakespeare's day, the actor playing Richard, who knows, maybe the writer himself, would have appeared above the action on the landing above the tiring house at the back of the stage, the same area used for Juliet's balcony. His subsequent descent furnishes Richard with some characteristic melodrama. Down, down I come, like glistering phyton, wanting the manage of unruly jades. Phaeton, of course, being the upstart son of the sun god in Greco-Roman mythology. Phaeton overreaches himself by insisting he ride his father's chariot, which he loses control of, destroying himself and scorching the earth. The comparison is apt, as according to C.W.R.D. Mosley, in Richard II, the fall of Richard is seen in terms of the sun being cast out of his sphere, for is not the sun the king of planets, and would not his goal be literally cataclysmic? This cataclysm upsets the natural order, and the world is thrown into chaos and civil war. The Elizabethans were particularly sensitive to the threat of civil war, and frequently descriptions of cataclysm were accompanied by imagery of brother turning against brother, father against son. Richard himself says at the beginning of the play, 
Our eyes do hate the dire aspect of civil wounds ploughed up with neighbour's sword. This horror might be somewhat hypocritical on his part. The dispute between Bolingbroke and Mowbray at the start of the play centres on the death of Richard's uncle, Thomas of Woodstock, and whether or not Mowbray had him murdered. An element of political euphemism is added to this scene when it is taken into account that Richard himself was quite likely to have ordered the murder of his uncle. I'm hoping we might get to dig a little bit more into this and look at the anonymous play Thomas of Woodstock, also called, tantalisingly, Richard II, Part 1. I don't know, it might have Patreon episode written all over it. Whether he began the rot or Bolingbroke did, Richard's downfall is associated with catastrophe. Even a bad king is a king. And even when it is only thought he is dead, apocalypse beckons, as one captain fearfully accounts. The bay trees in our country are all withered, and meteors fright the fixed stars of heaven. The pale-faced moon looks bloody on the earth, and lean-lucked prophets whisper fearful change. When former friends turn on each other, they do so in the language of cosmic chaos. I task the earth to the like forsworn or merle, and spur thee on with full as many lies as may be hollered in thy treacherous ear from sun to sun. There is my honour's pawn, engage it to the trial if thou darest. Here we have civil war in microcosm, and similarly, at the end of the play, in a strange comic coda, we see the Duke of York attempt to have his own son executed for treachery. What is clear from this is that once the universe is disordered, so are its subjects. Man's inner being was thought to mirror the structure of the cosmos, its inner harmony or discord reflecting and affecting the greater world outside it. This cosmic order was not a belief but a kind of commonplace in Shakespeare's day. It was based on ideas of Ptolemy, but some of its intricacies are mapped out here by Ranulf Higdon, writing in the 14th century. In the universal order of things, the top of an inferior class touches the bottom of a superior, as for instance oysters, which, occupying as it were the lowest position in the class of animals, scarcely rise above the life of plants, because they cling to the earth without motion and possess the sense of touch alone. The upper surface of the earth is in contact with the lower surface of water. The highest part of the water touches the lowest part of the air, and so by a ladder of ascent to the outermost sphere of the universe. So also the noblest entity in the category of bodies, the human body, when its humours are evenly balanced, touches the fringe of the next class above it, namely the human soul, which occupies the lowest rank of the spiritual order. For this reason the human soul is called the horizon or meeting group of corporeal and incorporeal, for in it begins the ascent from the lowest to the highest spiritual power. It's, uh, it's true, I think, that in the, in the early scenes of the play, particularly the beginning and the, the scene where Mowbray and Bullingbroke joust or go to joust. There's a lot of rhyming couplets there, and I think I think it's satirical is the wrong word, but I I, I think there's a, a slight edge of parody of a of a court, yeah, a parody of a of, of courtly event, and everyone's behaving themselves. Everyone's sort of you know turning their their legs out to show their nice. Um, lines and their, their their stockings and their you know whatever they were um and and everyone's everyone's behaving um and that that heavy behavior of the court is what has to break down mm. for the play to achieve its you know tragic conclusion its catharsis everything has to break down it rains a lot i think at times and yeah. it and uh, everything breaks down and, and not just 
one castle falls to Bolingbroke, but they all fall to Bolingbroke, you know, and young and old uh, turn from Richard to it's it's it has its epic, his failure. So, so the court and the courtly rhyming couplets all have to sort of go until at the end in the great long speech, thus play I in one prison many people, it's blank and um, full of shorter and longer lines. Yeah. More like thinking. Yeah. So the actual structure of the poetry of the play, in other words, starts um, as a very, very perfect example of rhyming couplets, a chronicle in rhyming couplets. And by the end of the play is sort of like the history become anarchic, and yeah. dangerous, unpredictable. And not stately. Not stately, human and individual. I used to think that you know Hamlet is, is the play, it's the Renaissance play that that delineates the individual. But you, you could make a similar argument for Richard II as well. Yeah, it it, wor- it works. So uh, it, I think it lines up with this sort of the, the the change in the verse brings you right to the present tense. If you sound, if you rhyme too much, and if you if you sound very structured and in that maybe semi burlesque way of a of a court you don't yeah. really sound like you're in the pr- the present tense because you don't sound like you're thinking as much you sound you, you know the character sounds rehearsed never mind the actor whereas yes at the end he doesn't he does sound like every droplet in that cell is is hap- you know happening around it's him. happening right there and then and in front of us I, and i i so love that scene and i so loved where we where we we played it uh, in 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 Brighton, we played it in a um, a cellar, mm. actually an outdoor yard, really. But it had a coal hole at the end of it, and uh, it was very dank and uh, mossy, and it it, it felt just just right for the yeah. for that realization of this echo homo. This is this is the man. mentioned that the play had attracted some criticism for being a better reading experience than a theatrical one. There is, as we have said, very little action, but a great deal of ceremony. The actor John Gielgud, who you heard in the uh, title role at the start of the episode, described Richard II as a ceremonial play. E.M.W. Tilliard expands on this, saying, The very actions tend to be symbolic rather than real. There is the pomp of the tournament without the physical meeting of the two armed knights, There is the great army of Welshmen assembled to support Richard, but they never fight. Bolingbroke, before Flint Castle, speaks of the terrible clash there should be when he and Richard meet. But instead of a clash, there is a highly ceremonious encounter, leading to the effortless submission of Richard. Richard's behaviour has led some critics to find him quite unbelievable. Algernon Charles Swinburne, for example, said of the King's speech upon landing in Wales, that it is exquisitely pretty and utterly unimaginable as the utterance of a man. Other critics are firmly in the reader's camp, and while they agree that the language is exquisite, that leaves them to believe actors can only bugger it up. In a delightfully insulting review from 1815, William Hazlitt writes that the representing of this play, even by the best actors, is an abuse of the genius of the poet. Hazlitt goes even further, saying, it is the reader of the plays of Shakespeare that is almost always disappointed in seeing them acted, and for our own parts, we should never go to see them acted if we could help it. The Richard he refers to was played by Edmund Keane, thought to be the greatest Shakespearean actor since the playwright's own time. But Hazlitt despairs at Keane's passion and energy in the title role, 
and goes on to say that while Mr. Pope was respectable in John of Gaunt, Mr. Holland was lamentable in the Duke of York, and Mr. Elliston indifferent in Bolingbroke. So why, we might ask, is this play so writerly? After all, Shakespeare wasn't just starting out, so we know it's not a case of a young poet who is awkwardly adapting his verses to the stage. From what we can see, Shakespeare's first plays didn't suffer from that sort of puberty anyway, from the bloody havoc of Titus Andronicus, the battles of the Henry VI trilogy, and even the farcical action in Comedy of Errors. It clearly didn't take the playwright long to write physical drama into his productions. Perhaps the play is more poetical because Shakespeare was coming back from a three-year hiatus from the stage, and in that time he had turned to writing poems like Venus and Adonis. Speculation about why the play is more lyrical can lead to interminable and useless discussions about whether or not Richard II is a major or minor entry in the writer's canon, and also to a kind of condescension particular to Shakespeare commentary. It is quite remarkable how many critics can hold Shakespeare as an unparalleled genius and in the next breath fondly reprimand him for some teenage whim. I think it's fair to say that the focus on language throughout Richard II is quite deliberate and not some indulgence of a poet yet to realise he is now writing drama. The plot turns on language. Richard is stunned at the sudden inability of the king's word, which effectively is the word of God, to slow or halt action against him. In his famous speech, he lays bare his helpless dependence on words with absolute clarity. Let's talk of graves, of worms and epitaphs. Make dust our paper and with rainy eyes write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. W.H. Auden finds it appropriate that a stagnant monarch like Richard would have an affinity with language, saying that language like any other creature, wants to be autonomous, to go its own way. Left to itself, it wants beautiful sounds and intricate rhetorical patterns. It is also conservative. It does not want to change a pattern that works well, and it is threatened by emotions and ideas that are too strong, too disorderly, or too new for tidy expression. Language is the enemy of action. If language had its way, action would stop, and man would exist in a lyrical trance. Richard exists in just such a trance, luxuriating in language, and his manner of speech while he is assured of his rule, or at least his role, is highly patterned and often characterised in Tilliard's nose-wrinkling phrase by frigidly ingenious couplets. This king, who, as Auden says, is more interested in the idea of kingship than in ruling, has paid a lot of critical attention to his affectations. It has resulted in a conservative pattern, often exquisite, always stately, but one which smacks of rehearsal. Speaking in rhyming couplets does take some forethought. Later, when Richard's role is taken from him, and when he can no longer rest on thought contented, he has to improvise. Alone in his cell, his final speech is born of still-breeding thoughts, which, when he tries to hammer out, are still exquisite in their way, but not stately, and much more varied in their rhythm. The thought units sometimes end in the middle of an unrhymed line. The rhythm is varied, giving the effect of a dislodged identity. Thus play I, in one person, many people, and none contented. Sometimes am I king, then treasons make me wish myself a beggar, and so I am. Then crushing penury persuades me I was better when a king. Then am I kinged again, and by and by think that I am unkinged by Bolingbroke and straight am nothing. Tellingly, when his speech is interrupted by the sound of music playing, Richard grasps onto it, telling himself, keep time, as he regains some semblance of stateliness. How sour sweet music is when time is broke and no proportion kept. So it is in the music of men's lives, and here have I the daintiness of ear to check time broke in a disordered string. But for the concord of my state and time, had not an ear to hear my true time broke. I wasted time, and now doth time waste me.
I've se- I've I've seen some versions or, or or some readings where he's he really comes off like a very sort of modern type of narcissist or or sociopath even uh, someone yes. who plays at being something more than they actually do it or care about it, which seems very contemporary, like a Wall Street yes. predator or a president, you know, <laughs> yes, someone who's yes. successful at what they do sim- because they don't care and because they're good at playing it rather than yes, yeah, some, someone it. with no apparent. Uh, morals mm. or no apparent um, belief system, except that he's he's very convinced of his divine right. Mm. Um, I find it very interesting in Shakespeare that, uh, that Shakespeare hardly ever, if ever, uh, says God or it's Jesus. In Richard's case, it's heaven. The divinity is uh, is indicated by by a place or a, a, the, the celestial sphere rather than 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 an entity um where am i going with this but what what he believes what he believes is right and proper or good or bad i didn't doesn't doesn't sort of come up he, he's an opportunist and he seizes john of gaunt's belongings very very quickly mm. um to audible gasps from other characters in the scene that would be the, the good old um duke of york it is Richard's seizing of John of Gaunt's title and lands that triggers Bolingbroke's return. Though at first he only appears to want to reclaim his land, his project escalates to taking the throne. It is interesting to see how land is venerated throughout this play and the histories. Although Coleridge said the spirit of patriotic reminiscence is the all-permeating spirit of this drama, John of Gaunt's famous speech crescendos in a misty-eyed hymn that goes further than nationalism, reaching a sort of every-field-and-hedgerow-type idolatry. This royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. E.M.W. Tilliard has suggested that throughout the history plays, the true protagonist is England herself. It's her welfare hanging in the balance of all this rot and political upheaval, and she is often addressed directly. When Bolingbroke is exiled, he parts with his country in high emotion. Then, England's ground, farewell, sweet soil, adieu, my mother and my nurse that bears me yet. In the cosmic order, an ill-starred king was associated with droughts and sickness in his realm. We have seen already how easy it would be to subscribe to this idea, given that a terrible famine marked many years of Edward II's reign. Richard actually uses this notion as a threat, saying that since he is under attack, his tears will lodge the summer corn and make a darth in this revolting land. This is the high-minded sulking of an outrageous hypocrite. It is Richard who has been left in charge of England, and he who is responsible if the country runs to waste. For if England is a sea-walled garden, then Richard is its gardener, and he has failed to prune the noisome weeds and the caterpillars of the Commonwealth his three chief flatterers, usefully named Bushy, Baggett and Green. Bitterly, John of Gaunt says of this other Eden that it is now leased out like to a tenement or a pelting farm. Landlord of England art thou now, he tells Richard, not king. This is imagery that harks back to Ovid and the Golden Age, a fruitful land, a paradise for humankind that through their bad gardening becomes a farm. The Elizabethan Age was one of green desire, or furor hortensis, garden madness. In an increasingly cosmopolitan London, Elizabethans lived among immigrants who brought plants and flowers back from their homelands. It was a taxonomist's wet dream, 
and new discovered plants were sometimes given multiple names out of sheer green exuberance. Sir Walter Raleigh brought potatoes and tobacco from the New World. Both would prove lastingly popular, but were dull in comparison to the rare and exotic flowers of the Far East, which wealthy London merchants would track down with the help of specially hired agents. We can tell from the proliferation of references in his plays that Shakespeare was au fait with idiomatic vegetable properties. And in Richard II, a gardener plans a bank of rue, the herb of grace, in remembrance of the weeping queen Isabella. According to Esther Singleton, the Elizabethans enjoyed their gardens and used them more than we use ours today. They went to them for recreation, renewing of body and refreshment of mind and spirit. Garden lovers were critical and careful about the arrangement and grouping of their flowers. Today we try for masses of colour, but the Elizabethans went farther than we do, for they blended their hues and even shaded colours from dark to light. The people of Shakespeare's day were also fastidious about perfume values. We have altogether lost this delicacy of gardening. The gardeners we see in the play go about their business as the Queen Isabella speaks of her grief at the state of her king and country. In not very disguised parallels, the gardeners tend to their blessed plot as Richard should to his. Go bind thou up, young dangling apricocks, which like unruly children make their sire stoop with oppression of their prodigal weight. Go thou, and like an executioner, cut off the heads of two fast-growing sprays that look too lofty in our commonwealth. Richard, the bad gardener, is eventually ruined by the two fast-growing sprays he lets grow amok. When he says at the end of the play that he is wasted, he could just as easily be describing his land. It is a downward, a downward uh, direction. Yeah. All, all the way. And at the beginning of the play, he's at the height of courtly sort of power. Mm. Um, that's right. And then he, you see him making one mistake after another in a, a, a sort of rather increasingly doom laden way. Mm. But he always, he always believes that he's doing the right thing and that, and, and it's going to work out well. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the doom laden because it's a, it's full of grief and and doom from kind of all quarters. Uh, Tears, yeah. Yeah, and I was going to ask you whether you thought there was there was a, another a source of that that grief and doom like feeling other than the obvious, uh, you know, Richard's downward trajectory, because he seems to sort of. I know historically there are more reasons for it, but in the play he almost gives in a bit quick in, you know, landing back uh, from Ireland. He, yes, he goes down. I mean, he, he regains a bit of um, uh, nerve afterwards, but he's quite quick to go. Oh well, all is lost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's that big scene on the greensward where Hen- Henry Henry Bolingbroke is on the green with an enormous army, and Richard is in is it Barclay Castle um, with with a few uh, loyal uh, courtiers and 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 soldiers. I think he's already dismissed his army, for God's sake, let them go to ear the earth mm. that have some hope to grow, for I have none. And then later, about in Act 4, is the deposition scene, and he's still in charge. He, he's, he, the scene is so strong, and he's so powerful at it, and he's so imaginative about what life's going to hold for him, and so theatrical about... Uh, uh, portraying this in every uncomfortable detail to all of the opportunistic enemies that now face him. Mm. It's almost as if it's been worth it for this drama queen scene. Yeah, abs- that, that absolutely. He's, he's going to enjoy this more, in a way, yeah. than, than remaining king with all its boring um, 
accompanying responsibilities and so on. Actually, maybe it's it's more fun. Maybe yeah. this is going. I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down howling. I'm going to have the best exit of any any monarch agree. ever. You know? Yeah, I've always. I, I wouldn't have been able to put it that well, but I've always got that kind of. And I think that's another modern thing. That immediately reminds me of something. I don't know exactly who, but something like you know a kind of financial district baddie uh enron type people who were doing awful scams and by the time they come down you they almost sound relieved you know whether they're yes. living these horrible sort of wolf of wall street type lives and you can almost see it in their faces like oh, it's actually not as bad as i was expecting i'm not going to be yes electrocuted yes, i'm going to have a very I'm, I'm, comfy <laughs> three year oh you yeah, know something like that like it was worth it yes. for the spectacular down and then i'll be out and then i'll go to india and and study yoga and yeah. I'll, you know find what i've always wanted my inner self you know and, yeah. uh, having wreaked havoc for millions of lives they'll 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 redeem themselves somehow i was about to say that's not true for richard because he's just going to get murdered in a cell but actually it is he you know he's going to mount he and move on yeah you know yeah as far as he's yes. concerned he is off to yes. the great yoga class in the sky <laughs> is is he a, is he a is he a tragic character who doesn't quite deserve a tragedy he mm. he it's a tragic story for him and obviously he has a fatal flaw his uh arrogance or overweening sort of assumption about his own importance Reminiscent of Charles the First, as well, you know, this divine right, mm. and uh, and an inability to to realise where power really lies. So you know, but is that tragic or is that just a mistake? He's he's not Hamlet. He's not he's not. It doesn't go as far into himself as Hamlet, and the play doesn't go far in as far into his psychology as 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 Hamlet. The play goes into Hamlet's psychology. Yeah. they're quite different. It, I come back to that thing of it being like a sort of chronicle, like a a Chaucer or a, or a John Langland or something. Mm. As we've seen, a common thread in Richard II's criticism is that the play's lyrical nature renders it undramatic. Dr. Johnson said it lacked the happy force of some of his other tragedies and didn't much affect the passions or enlarge the understanding. Though it could be argued that staging even a bloodless deposition could strike a nerve, and not just in Shakespeare's own time. In 1681, Nahum Tate, the man who notoriously rewrote Shakespeare's King Lear with a happy ending, had his production of Richard II cancelled. Once again, the depiction of a monarch deposed was sensitive material, this time with the Civil War in recent memory. Since Richard II was banned, Tate took it upon himself to steal it back on stage under an assumed name. The Sicilian usurper was essentially still Richard II, only with Italianized names. The authorities weren't fooled though, and Tate was banned again. He consoled himself by saying that though it was forbid to tread the stage, his play might survive in print. As a character, Richard has often been written off as simply effeminate, foolish, feckless and weak. Perhaps this is due to some similarity to his great-grandfather, Edward II. But Richard has more to him than that, and stands out from the other kings by being more self-reflective, smart without being cunning, and though unwise, able to express a sort of truth. As Edward Dowden says, he has a kind of artistic relation to life, without being an artist. One of the interesting, and I would say dramatic, contradictions in Richard is that, though he proudly affects being king, he is yet unable to stop or even slow down his undoing. 
Dowden goes on to say that life is to Richard a show, a succession of images, and to put himself in accord with the aesthetic requirements of his position is Richard's first necessity. He is therefore a king who feels he is at the mercy of events he could in fact influence or even control. We see this as things begin to look promising for Bolingbroke, but not yet cataclysmic for Richard. He all too easily goes to pieces. Having just stoutly announced that heaven guards the right, upon then hearing he has lost 12,000 men, Richard immediately pales and despairs. All souls that will be safe fly from my side, for time hath set a blot upon my pride. It takes Ormeld's nudging of Richard, remember who you are, for the king to gather himself. Awake, thou coward majesty, thou sleepest. Coleridge diagnosed Richard as suffering from a constant overflow of emotions and a total incapability of controlling them, which results in a waste of that energy which should have been reserved for actions but has been spent in the passion and effort of mere resolves and menaces. The consequence is moral exhaustion and rapid alternations of unmanly despair and ungrounded hope, every feeling being abandoned for its direct opposite upon the pressure of external accident. When Richard is brought low, he all too quickly embraces it, becomes the beggar, and lords his own pain. His self-pity is an awful lot prettier than most people's, but it still achieves self-pity's first aim, which is to avoid self-criticism. This is something most of us are guilty of on occasion, and one for which we will never have to pay so steep a price as Richard. But despite this aspect of the king, which if not universal, is at least quite recognisable, critics have often refused to dredge up any sympathy for Richard. As Charles Edward Montague says, the general judgment on the play reads as if the critics felt they would be only encouraging Richard if they did not assure him throughout the ages that his poetry was sad stuff at best. It's no excuse, one seems to hear them say, and serve you right, you and your poetry. W.B. Yeats agreed that Richard has been effectively bullied over the centuries for being sentimental, weak, selfish and insincere. His opinion of these critics was that they took the same delight in abasing Richard II that schoolboys do in persecuting some boy of fine temperament who has weak muscles and a distaste for school games. Is he a sad clown? I think he, he is. He's so ridiculous in, in many ways. And, mm. and so and out brilliant. of... Brilliant. And he's alienated by how brilliant he is. And that's another really sad thing because there, there is some really touching moments of back to grief again is it carlisle who says to him at one point oh come on wise men don't sit around and wail but get start thinking how they might prevent the ways to wail yes yes or i, I don't know who says that or, or merle or um or york or... yeah you know it's pragmatic and completely uh useless advice to give to someone who is genuinely grief-stricken you know i'll oh, just try and think of ways of not being sad you know, but yes, but yes. but all you can do really for someone who's properly doomed. He ca cannot resist an opportunity to to sit down and discourse. Uh, hence, hence the wonderful um, hollow crown speech. Mm. And there's a there's a beautiful illustration somewhere. Is it the Wilton diptych or yes. where? Uh, is it where I where the court Richard and the court are? are seated and they're listening to Chaucer and Chaucer is the court poet and Chaucer's reciting or reading something of his and I always have that in my mind when when that scene yeah. comes up even in the midst of of disaster he'd rather he'd rather make a speech yeah. he'd rather have something to say historically it makes sense that Richard II is more an artist than other kings as he was living in a time of medieval refinement 
Chaucer, who was a young poet in Edward III's court, wrote some of his most famous works during the time of King Richard. The king's court was one of high art and fashion, a point which gets mocked in Shakespeare's play. Report of fashions in proud Italy, whose manners still our tardy apish nation limps after in base imitation. Perhaps all this culture was bad for Richard, as according to Charles Edward Montague, it has been called the aim of artistic culture to witness things with appropriate emotions. That is Richard's aim. Good news or bad news, the first thing with him is to put himself in the right vein for getting the fullest and most poignant sense of its contents. He runs out to meet the lower fall or a new shame as a man might go to his door to see a sunset or a storm. Shakespeare was going through a creative liberation of his own, following the death in 1593 of his chief rival in poetry and playwriting, Christopher Marlowe. Perhaps we should not be surprised that Shakespeare's four plays that followed are some of his most lyrical, Love's Labour's Lost, Romeo and Juliet, A Midsummer Night's Dream and Richard II, the last of which, it's worth remembering, bears more than a passing resemblance to Marlowe's Edward II. That the play features particularly lyrical verse suits the artistic world of Richard II's court, but is also important in regard to the cosmic order, in which music and concord demonstrated a universe in literal harmony. The music of the spheres is a phrase we get from the old idea that harmony was created by the movement of the stars. According to CWRD Mosley, the planets circle the Earth in their unending ordered dance, singing as they go, and transmitting to it, according to their natures, the powers God has given them. This influence, whence our term for the originally inexplicable disease, influenza, is thought of as a physical substance passing through the air. John of Gaunt speaks of the music at the end of men's lives, anticipating the music heard during Richard's final speech. His own impending death brings out music of a different kind, for as he says, the tongues of dying men enforce attention like deep harmony. Where words are scarce, they are seldom spent in vain, for they breathe truth that breathe their words in pain. According to Tilliard, the planetary motions of the heavens have their counterpart in the immortal soul of man, and our souls would sound in accord with the grander music of the cosmos were it not for the earthly and perishable nature of the body. References to this harmony and the breaking of it resound throughout the play. Troubled by Bolingbroke's rise, Richard says how high a pitch his resolution soars. And when Mowbray is banished, what seems to hurt the most is losing the ability to make music. The language I have learnt these forty years, my native English, I must forego. And now my tongue's use is to me no more than an unstringed viol or a harp, or like a cunning instrument cased up within my mouth, you have enjailed my tongue. Richard's tongue, enjailed at the end of the play along with the rest of Richard, commands the music he hears to stop. It signals that the king has woken up from his lyrical trance and is ready to meet his fate. This music mads me, let it sound no more, for though it have hulp madmen to their wits, in me it seems it will make wise men mad. When do, when do we see the inner life? For, for me, it's, it's pretty much at the, at the end of the play. Yeah. In one of the very longest speeches in Shakespeare, um, I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world, and for because the world, and not, there's no because, there's no because, there's no because, and for the world <laughs> is populist. <laughs> uh, and here is not a creature but myself. I cannot do it, yet I'll hammer it out. And he talks about the functioning of his own mind mm. and, and shows you how split he is and how his thoughts lead him in lots of different directions. And he's in a cell basically waiting for fate to yeah. 
come and uh, let him escape or, or, or finish him. Um, I think underneath he probably knows he's not going to survive. The shadow of your sorrow hath destroyed the shadow of your face, says Bolingbroke to Richard. We have discussed in a previous episode the significance of shadows and shades in Shakespeare's writing, and players were sometimes called shadows or phantoms. Richard, who as we have seen, is a great king performer, if not a great king himself, seems to intuit that he is somewhat unsubstantial. Oh, that I were a mockery king of snow, standing before the son of Bolingbroke to melt myself away in water drops. In a famous moment during his deposition, Richard calls for a mirror, saying with disbelief, Was this the face that, like the sun, did make beholders wink before shattering the glass? His tragedy is that of someone who, in a quite basic way, is not very serious. As Edward Dowden asks, Into what glimmering limbo will such a soul as that of Richard pass when the breath leaves the body? The pains of hell and the joys of heaven belong to those who have serious hearts. Richard has been a graceful phantom. He has a lot of people around him to to tell him how to feel and how to be and how to think. Mm. Um, he's always being advised in, in loquacious, you know, overbearing terms, you know, sometimes, including by the Queen, who is historically an infant yeah. at the time. Not in the play, but in mm. historically, she was very much younger than him. Very um, wise infant. Very, very wise. Mm. Yes, a wise child, a beautiful character, really. Mm. Um, we were very lucky to have our, our puppet maker create a, a puppet that was equal to Richard for the Queen. Yeah. Because she doesn't have a lot to do, but she grows enormously in the play. She has a really rich inner life. She she really talks a lot about what's going on inside her and mm. in, in trenchant and, and tragic terms. She's as uh, lachrymose as he is, but she really hones in on what's causing her grief. And then suddenly... Um, there's a rebellion and she says that's it that's it. I know now I know why I'm feeling like this and and then at the end of the play she she's still trying to hearten hearten him and and refusing to go and be a nun in in France yeah and uh, th that's the tragedy I think her story in a way is the tragedy of the play yeah and that and that they only realize at the very end how he only realizes at the very end how much he's loved where are we left at the end of Richard II? England survives, but a world and an old order has been lost. As E.M.W. Tilliard says, In Richard II, it is the old, brilliant, medieval England of the last Plantagenet in the authentic succession. In Henry IV, it will be the England not of the Middle Ages, but of Shakespeare himself. The work of the play, Tilliard goes on to say, has been in proclaiming the great theme of the whole cycle of Shakespeare's history plays the beginning in prosperity, the distortion of prosperity by a crime, civil war, and ultimate renewal of prosperity. It might have shown the old, brilliant medieval England, but there was plenty for Elizabethans to recognise in Richard II. The Queen herself famously said, I am Richard II, know ye not that? The comparison is astute, as Nicholas Brooke has written. It is a curious self-division that Shakespeare portrays. That Richard looks like a king but doesn't have the spirit of one is the opposite of Elizabeth's claim to have a man's spirit in the body of a woman. Kings were thought to have two bodies, one private and mortal, the other divine and immortal. Today we have come across a few old beliefs that have passed into idiom, and the idea of the king's two bodies is another. Long after there was widespread belief in the two bodies of the king, Coleridge referenced the idea beautifully. 
I respect a man while, and only while, the king is translucent through him. I reverence the glass case for the saint's sake within. Except for that, it is to me mere glazier's work. Putty, glass, and wood. And I think that's a good place to leave things for today. An exquisite turn of phrase, ending on a line that aptly describes the king who wears the hollow crown. One who fears he perhaps is merely putty, glass, and wood. As I said at the top of the episode, do check back in tomorrow where I'll be posting an extended interview with Gregory. Huge thanks uh, to him for joining me today. Um, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to get in touch about anything um, to do with Richard II or anything else, you can email me at uh, eareadthis at gmail.com. Uh, find us on um, all the social medias, eareadthis for all of them, I think. Um, and if you'd like to support the podcast, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash eareadthis. I'll be back tomorrow with a more of a chat with Gregory. And until then, happy reading. <laughs>